and welcome back to You Ask For It, a podcast by pastors who are just wanting to answer your hard questions that you have about the world, um, about faith, and even theology. And the question that we have today is more of a theological question. Um, and the question is this, how do we keep, how do you keep a church from splitting over the topic of predestination? And that is a controversial topic in Baptist life now. But before we get to the discussion here, I want to define terms we'll be using. Okay. We'll be talking about Calvinism or Calvinists. And basically, Calvinists are those who emphasize predestination and the sovereignty of God. Mm. Now, in Baptist life, most people are somewhere on the spectrum of, of more Calvin than the other side. But the emphasis, I believe, the difference is sometimes the emphasis. Hmm. The other side, they've called themselves traditionalist or John 3.16 Christians, whereas the Calvinists speak constantly of the sovereignty of God. The 3.16 people tend to speak more of the love of God. Uh, Calvin did not come up with five points, but we'll be hearing the term from the surveys of five-point Calvinists. He was actually uh, already gone on to heaven and had died before some of his followers came up with these five points. The most controversial of the five points of Calvinism is the teaching that Jesus did not die for everyone. He died only for those who were predestined to be saved. Uh, I, I know of one very famous pastor who got his Ph.D. at Southern proving, according to, to what he said, that Calvin was only a four-point Calvinist, not a five-point Calvinist. He did not believe that, G- that Calvin taught that Jesus died only for the predestined. Um, now, the question, though, is this. How can you keep a church from splitting? Because, Justin, you and I both know of churches yeah. that have split when gung-ho, especially young pastors, come in and make Calvinism the issue. Yes, and, and I mean, there's a whole other issue that we could talk about right there. About We'll get to in a little bit about smaller issues becoming primary issues. But but just real quickly, even about the growth of um, Calvinism, um, what we've seen is those who've kind of hold to a commitment to Calvin's view on predestination and, and how to do church kind of th- through that lens is mainly... Uh, Mainly now the growth is through those who are maybe in their 40s to 20s um, on the younger side of pastoring. And I'll give you some statistics that prove that. Uh, LifeWay did a study uh, in 2006, and it, sh- and it showed that 10% of SBC pastors said they were five-point Calvinists. However, among among pastors, those who were just beginning their pastorate in 2006, that was actually at 30% used that label. But then by 2012... The last time the survey was done, we see that 30% of pastors labeled themselves as five-point Calvinists. So not just, you know, beginning pastors, but 30% of all pastors. Now, some of this most likely has to do with the popularity of a, um, of a, um, conference that I've been to. Pastor Steve, you've sent, um, college to us too, and it's a passion, uh, conference called Passion. And, um, it was started, I believe, around 1999. And it's, and, and it's life-changing oh, conference. I'm all for it. Absolutely. An incredible conference. And it's brought in, um, speakers such as Matt Chandler and, um, John Piper, who is probably one of the biggest proponents of Calvinism right now, and Louis Giglio, who runs it. And all of them tend to lean on, uh, the reform side or the Calvinistic side of doctrine. And this is not just a small gathering. Um, I personally went when it was 40,000 gathered. Um, now they've gotten up to 70,000 people gathered in the Mercedes-Benz Dome in Atlanta. So you think that's a lot of people who are coming through there who are part of that conference. It's also been um, a resurgence that happened mainly among young pastors that many called or called them the young, restless, reformed pastors. And, and here's what I'd say. 
Pastor Steve, you and I were talking about this earlier. You lived in a generation that was very much changed by Jesus movement. Yes. Movement. Uh, what was y'all's passion? Would you say it was called? Oh, Explo 72 had 80,000 people at Dallas Stadium. Absolutely. And it was this jumping off point that sent people out. Mm -hmm. Um, People that were tired of kind of cold, dead church that wanted to see a church vibrant. I think this Young Restless Reform movement was birthed out of of, um, guys who had seen maybe in the 80s and the 90s, early 2000s, churches who didn't really teach the scriptures, deep scriptures anymore, more of just kind of surface level doctrine. And they said, we want to really know the Bible. We want to really teach the Bible. And it felt like these guys were the ones who were doing that. And so I think those are some some areas you can trace this to. I, I talked to a professor of theology at Southwestern Seminary. He is not a Calvinist. And he said his opinion was the reason why Calvinism was so attractive to so many of the young was this. They had grown up in churches, a lot of them smaller churches, where the pastor was very emotional. He used a lot of cliches, uh, but it wasn't like there was great depth of verse-by-verse Bible teaching. Mm. And then they heard the Pipers and people like that who were thorough in teaching. And so they say, well, they're Calvinists, and they're giving me verse-by-verse teaching. My pastor at home is not a Calvinist, and he basically hits emotional heartstrings. Mm. So they felt their choice was between shallow and deep, Mm. deep meaning Calvinism. Mm. Now, I never felt that kind of division because— Frankly, I grew up with some of the greatest Bible teaching, verse-by-verse teaching, from the camp that wasn't Calvinist, Mm -hmm. the professors, the pastors who were trained at places like Dallas Seminary or Moody Bible Institute, people like Mm -hmm. Chuck Swindoll, Stuart Briscoe. So I, I never had that kind of of picture of it being that being the choice. Yeah. So we've talked about the kind of the where this is, you know, kind of the background of this and in our own experiences. So here's what we want to do in the podcast today. We want to show that there are a variety of ways that that true Christians approach the subject of predestination. Mm-hmm. Um, so some views on that. Second of all, what we want to do is pick up a concept that was put forward by Al Mohler called spiritual triage. And we'll kind of explain that we'll in a minute. We'll go to that in a minute, yes. Yeah. First of all, let me say this. Reading the Bible, it's hard to put together some of the truths that are stated there. They don't seem to uh, fit together. I'll I'll give you two examples. In Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself. So here you've got a verse that says, Before the world was ever created, He chose us in Him. But then you get 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, the Lord does not want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Hmm. First Timothy chapter two, verse four. He wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So how in the world can you have God saying, I picked those who are going to be saved before I created the world, but I want everybody to be saved. It's hard to put those two together. When I went to Alabama, I had an Auburn student who made an appointment to see me early on, sat down in my office and said, Pastor Steve, you've got to help me. You've got to explain predestination to me or I'm going to die. <laughs> and I said, young man, you're going to have to get used to disappointment. People have been trying to figure this thing out for centuries, and nobody's got it figured out. If they had, there would be no arguing about it. Hmm. So you're going to have to learn how to live with a mystery, that there are things that are bigger than our small minds can grasp. Hmm. Just one of the greatest ways that I've that I've been taught how to handle the fact that you have two sets of verses that don't seem to match came from a book by J.I. Packer, who, by by the way, was a Calvinist, mm-hmm. called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And in that book, he in, introduces a concept called antinomy, mm-hmm. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y. 
And he says, an antinomy is a truth where two things are contradictory, yet they both are true. Hmm. And, and there's an antinomy in science. When, when the scientists studied light, they found that light is made up of both waves and particles. And that can't be, but that's hmm. the truth. Hmm. So light is made up of waves and particles. So what do scientists do? They act as if both are true. So what I've decided to do when I'm reading my Bible, if I'm in a predestination verse, I go, amen. If I'm in a free will verse, I go, amen. I'm going to let God figure that out. Yeah, I think that's great. I think another way to kind of understand this, and, and, and here's what we do with theology in general. Or we want to just know everything. Like, why doesn't it all, why isn't it all easy to understand? Um, John Calvin himself said that the Bible is God's baby talk. Mm-hmm. Think about that. The, the the simplest possible way he can try to explain what he's trying to do. Now, you know, Steve, that I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old at home, and five-year-olds, it's amazing. I didn't realize this. My five-year-old asks really hard questions. He's asking about heaven and about hell, um, and, and he's going, Daddy, explain this to me. And I'm like, well, this isn't easy, you know, and I'm trying to think, how in the world can I, as simply as possible, explain to him these big concepts, and it's hard. So I can imagine... An infinite God trying to explain this to finite human beings uh, like me. One of my favorite verses to help us see this is Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. He says this, that for my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as, for as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And so God's saying right here, look, my, I, you can't fully comprehend what if, I'm doing. If, if I could figure God out, yeah. then that means God is as small as my mind. Yeah, and we don't want that. No. That's a small God. Yes. Yeah. Well, basically what I teach at Fruitland, what I've done in the pulpit here, is there are three basic ways that Bible-believing Christians approach the concept of predestination. And I'll say in advance that what I want in our church is that if anyone holds any of these three views, I want our church to be big enough for all of them, hmm. uh, that, that we will say this is a secondary matter, not a not a first degree matter. But but let me explain the three ways very briefly uh, of how people approach the subject of predestination. The first way is this, and this would be the Calvinist way: that God chose us before we were born to be saved for good reasons of His own. I've already mentioned in chapter one of verse four in Ephesians, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. But let me read verse five. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Mm. I I don't understand everything about God, but I know that anything God does, he does. It's got to be good because God is good. So for good reasons that God hasn't shared with us, he picked this one. He picked that one. He picked this one. I don't understand it, but God did the picking. Now, Spurgeon, who was a Calvinist, said this. God had to have chosen me before I was born because he never would have afterwards. <laughs> that's good. And so that's the Calvinist view. The view that I grew up with in the typical Baptist church before this new resurgence was the view that God's choice of us is based upon his foreknowledge, hmm. that God knows everything in advance. He knew who would trust in him, so he set his plan around that. And a verse that teaches that is Romans eight twenty nine, For those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Foreknowledge precedes predestination. And so that that satisfied me throughout my growing up years. There's another view that 
one Baptist in Baptist life, a man named Herschel Hobbs, who wrote the book, The Baptist Faith and Message, some mm. years ago that so many people have read, when he deals with predestination, he gives a view that points out that in Ephesians 1, which is one of the few places where you'll find the word predestined, there's a, a phrase that comes up over and over again. It's the phrase, in Christ, that every blessing we have comes in Jesus. I'll give you some example from Ephesians 1. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ. And then he says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 11, in him we've received an inheritance. So Mm. everything is in Christ. So basically what he said is this that what God planned in advance was not individuals. Number six, you're in a fix. Number seven, you're on your way to heaven. What he planned was that all those who would be in Christ, who would trust Christ and be placed in Christ, that all of those who would trust Christ and are placed in Christ have a predetermined destiny, they will go to heaven. So it's more predestining the way rather than individuals. Mm-hmm. So that's three views that sincere Bible-believing Christians have gone to the same Bible and come up with. And and basically what I'd love to say is if you can find those three strong views, that ought to be a red flag saying, beware of being dogmatic. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you said earlier, we want to make sure that our church is big enough for all three camps. For something that is not specifically clear in Scripture, we want to draw the circle as wide as orthodoxy allows, right? Right. You said that before. And this is what's really big about our church. Um, For those who are listening and don't know, we're in Hendersonville, North Carolina, um, the retirement capital of the United States of America. And so we have people that come from all different denominations, all different backgrounds, and they've found their way into our church, mainly because maybe their church doesn't hold the Bible anymore or they just haven't found a church and they find ours. And so here's what's cool is you've got Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, all of those who've come from all different directions that are now in our church who all from their backgrounds probably hold a different view of this. And so what we want to say is as long as they they love Jesus, they believe in his path of salvation, then we want to welcome them in and say that this is not something that's going to keep you from being a part of what we're doing um, here at First Baptist Center. And we hold strongly to the essentials of the faith. Yes, but we also believe that the non-essentials, we can have diversity. And tell us about Al Mohler's principle. Yeah, Al Mohler, this very thing is called theological triage. Um, and what he basically said is when, when it comes to theology, we have to do triage, meaning that there are primary, secondary, and tertiary issues um, when it comes to understanding doctrine. And that primary issues, those dealing with salvation, those dealing with how to, to, to get to be with God, get to heaven, those... Those have to be non-negotiables. We'll fight to the yes. death over the, over the gospel. Absolutely, but ecclesiology and how to do church, or how to how to take communion, or um, or you know how to do youth ministry. All those kind of things are secondary and tertiary issues, and those should not be placed up into the primary issue. Now, here's where we come into a problem today. It feels like it's very difficult to do theological triage nowadays. We just have people who struggle with secondary, with separating primary, secondary, and tertiary issues. But I believe that the Bible kind of commands for us to do that because we're all different people. Uh, can yeah. I give a biblical basis for saying that there are majors and minors? Hmm. In Matthew 23, Jesus scolded them and says, You tithe, mint, cumin, and dill. 
but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law of justice and, and, and righteousness. So he says that there are some things in the Old Testament that are weightier than others, hmm. more important than others. Yeah. In Romans 14, they were dividing over whether or not you could eat meat that was offered to the idols so that you could buy cheaply at the pagan temples. He says, no, no, that, that's a matter of a person's conscience. You, you choose what you can do on that. But what we need to do is we need to concentrate on the kingdom of God, which is yeah. a matter of Amen. righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. So keeping the majors the strong thing. Hmm. Um, I'll give you my definition of the majors when we talk about major and on the majors and not the minors. I believe the majors are those things that determine a person's eternity. Mm. Now that we can't yield on. The Bible is true that Jesus died for our sins, that he bodily rose from the grave. Those great truths that you must put your faith in. Uh, We'll fight to the death on that. But I don't believe that when you stand at the gates of heaven, God is going to say, now, what was your view of predestination? And your answer to that question will determine whether or not you get in. Yeah. I don't think that's the issue. So because of that, let's make that a secondary issue. Again, I make one closing point, Justin. We're in a major spiritual battle with a secular culture that's hostile to us right now. Yeah. I mean, my soul, hmm. the world is against us. So here we have Christians who are being attacked by the world. When I mean, you've got to recognize this. God is giving us and God has given churches only so much time and energy. Mm. If we take our limited time and time and energy and use it fighting each other, then Satan wins. So we've got to stay united among the major things, make a stand for the Bible and and then love each other on on these secondary matters. Mm. Richard Wormbrand was a pastor in Romania. Uh, leader of the evangelical church. There was a brand new movement that had come into Pentecostal that he said in tracts that he wrote, this is the greatest danger to Christianity in Romania. It was that new group called the Pentecostals. (laughs) And so he took his energy to fight the Pentecostals, and then the communists came in. Hmm. And they arrested him, and they arrested the Pentecostal preachers. And he found himself in the cells with them and being tortured for Christ together. They would lay bleeding on the floor and pray together. And he said, after that experience, I will never attack another brother. Wow. I, I, when I leave here, I will understand what, what the real enemy is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it says in the scriptures too that they will know us by our love, not by our you know, stance on predestination, not by how big our churches are, not by how well we can argue our point, but they will know us by yes. our love. And that's what we want to be known for as people who love each other well. And because of that, we would just ask for that to be the desire for Christians, right? On yes. Even issues like this, to say it's okay to agree to disagree, um, but we are united around one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. And because of that, that means we can get through any other disagreement that we have on the Scriptures. Um, so I think that's important. I hope that was helpful for you today. Um, and uh, if it wasn't enough, then, you know, there's other books that you can read that aren't ours. But we thought, you know, this could be something that could really help you work through these these issues in a simple way, but then also hopefully leave you saying, you know what, it's important, but it's not the ultimate important thing. And so um, if you have any questions still, remember, you can always send it in to our website, youaskedforit.live. Uh, send those questions in. We're, we're getting questions every single day, and we love to add that to our lineup. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.